At the end of this service, we're going to sing, To God be the glory, great things He has done. What would you put on the list of things the Lord has done for you? These are probably the things that we'll mention around our Thanksgiving table this coming Thursday. Lifeway Research did a study and found that 88% of Americans are thankful for family, 77% for health, 72% for personal freedom, 71% for friends, 51% for achievements, and 32% are thankful for wealth. Those are some of the things that Americans are thankful for. Interesting demographically, uh, those 65 and older, 48% of them are thankful for fun experiences, but guess what? 70% of those under 25 are thankful for fun experiences. Some of the things on our thankfulness list. The list is good, but it isn't complete. It has a, a missing dimension. It's missing what brings real depth to real life. What can bring that depth? I think the answer is holy things. Holy things bring a depth to life that family and friends and personal freedom and wealth and achievement and fun experiences can't bring. So what I want us to do this morning is this. Figure out what holy things are. The things that bring depth to our life. Because we've got to ask God to show us those holy things and let us have them as our own. That's what we want to talk about as we come this morning to, once again, Matthew chapter 7. If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew 7. I've forgotten the page number in the pew if you're using that in, in front of you. But when you found your place in Matthew 7, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 6, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, Give good things to those who ask Him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You again for Your Word. Thank You that we hold it in our hands. Thank You, Lord, it's written in a language that we can understand. Thank You, Lord, that when Your Spirit joins Your Word, the reading, the hearing of it, there is power, there is transformation awaiting to take place. And that's what we desire this morning, Lord, through the truth of your word and the power of your spirit, we pray that you would transform our lives. Lord, we want to be the people 
you have called us to be. We want to value those things that you value. We want to see them and use them rightly. So toward that end, we pray your blessing on our time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, the passage before us this morning contains one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. It's very well known, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door shall be opened for you. A famous verse. Now that famous verse is preceded by one of the most peculiar verses that we read in Scripture. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now that doesn't sound very much like something floating Jesus would say, does it? It sounds kind of harsh, difficult to understand. The the words that we love to hear from Jesus are words of love and grace and compassion and mercy. That is all well and good. But this verse seems a little harsh. A little difficult. But understanding verse 6, the peculiar verse, helps us better understand verse 7, this most famous verse. So let's start with the difficult verse first. Verse 6. One commentator just gave up entirely on understanding this verse. And he wrote, what is one to do with this biblical word in the church today? My advice is radical. One should not use it as a biblical word. Such a saying whose context has become totally unrecognizable was able to be used only as a very biblical legitimation for ecclesiastical or theological divisions that for other reasons already existed. And he criticizes this verse for being difficult to understand. But we can't give up that easily on words that Jesus speaks to us. And we do have the ability to understand what Jesus is saying here. And in order to get to that meaning, let's define four terms that we see in this verse. Dogs, what is holy, pigs, and pearls. Let's take pigs first because it's the easiest one of all. It's very clear in Scripture in the Old Testament. God clearly declares pigs to be unclean. And he forbids his people to eat any pig product. So it's a life of no barbecue and no bacon. The second term, dog, was considered a term of contempt. Now I know many of you are dog owners. Many of you are dog lovers. I know that we now live in a culture that seems to me to value dogs more than it values human beings. And sometimes I think they have more rights than people have. But when you hear Jesus' words here, please don't imagine your fluffy little Fido or your majestic Mastiff or your perfectly poised Pointer or your luxurious Labrador or your terrific Terrier. Is that enough? (laughs) Preachers love alliteration. The dogs that kind that Jesus were talking about were not this kind of dogs. You probably would not ever want to encounter one of them on a street, definitely not in an alley. They were wild, they were undomesticated, and they were known for their viciousness 
and their appetite for disgusting food. These kind of dogs licked the sores of lepers, and their own stomachs could not tolerate the disgusting food that they ate. And so when their stomachs rejected the disgusting food they ate, the dog just came back to that rejected pile and ate it again. Now that was a delicate way of saying that these dogs returned to their own vomit. And so for the audience listening to Jesus, dogs and pigs were unclean, and they were the most derogatory terms that could be used of someone else in Jesus' day. That's dogs. Let's move to the third term, what is holy. What does this mean? The earliest interpretation we have of this verse or this phrase, what is holy, it's found in the Didache. And the Didache, many scholars believe, was written in the first century. So it was written very early. And in fact, it was in the running to be included in the New Testament canon. But eventually, it was rejected. So the Didache interprets what is holy as referring to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was holy, and it wasn't to be given to just anyone or to dispense to someone who was not baptized in the name of Jesus. The Lord's Supper was too holy for that. The Apostle Paul certainly gives the Supper that weight of holiness when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So these are words that sober us, and they make us feel the weight, the heaviness, of the holy things of God, the things that can give depth to your life and mine. What is holy, then, should inspire awe and reverence and internal reflection. By the third century, what is holy came to refer to Christian doctrines. It came to refer to the truth of God's Word. These truths in God's Word are holy. The fourth term, pearls, emphasizes the meaning of what is holy. We know that pearls are a treasure of great value. And in Jewish culture, like ours, valuable or excellent or wise words were called pearls. Later in Matthew 15, Jesus tells this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. See, the parable is about the kingdom of heaven and what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so every truth that you can think of concerning the kingdom of heaven, every aspect of the reality of it, of entering the kingdom here on earth, of living in the kingdom, of submitting to Christ as the king, of the kingdom, of watching and waiting for that kingdom to be 
finally and completely fulfilled when Christ comes, of how the Spirit of God empowers our living in this kingdom, all of those things, and anything else you can list about the kingdom of God, all of them are pearls, they're truths, and they are of great value, and they should be, they ought to be of great value to you and to me. The partner parable of the pearl parable in Matthew 15 highlights the same truth. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That is just how valuable the kingdom of heaven is. The treasure that is worth everything that this man has. He gave it all. Is this how you treasure the things of God? What would you give just to have them? Would you give up everything to get them? Now I know the church answer is yes. We all say yes. I would give it all. But I think this is one of those moments where we probably need to get home and get alone with the Lord and get quiet before Him and and place all the truths that we can think of and list about the kingdom of God here. And then let's overhear all the things that we have in our lives, the things, the relationships, the situations and circumstances. And we need to put them side by side. And we need to determine how much of this list are we willing to give up for the truths and the beauty of the kingdom of God. So let's do some synthesis of these terms to get at Jesus' meaning. When Jesus says, do not give what is holy to dogs, the, the mental picture that Jesus might have intended for his audience is something like this. A family takes a trip to the temple, and they bring with them meat that they want to sacrifice on their behalf to the Lord. And so the family takes that meat and they give it to the priest. The priest takes the meat from them and he puts that meat on the altar. And the pleasing aroma of that burning meat, it wafts up to the Lord who accepts that offering that's made in faith. But all the meat that the family brings is not burned up on the altar. There's some left over. And that portion of meat that was not burned, it's still holy. And it's still set apart to God. And so the leftover portion of meat was given to the priest who had been set aside by God and for God. And so the holy meat was given to the holy man for use by his family. Now what would be shocking is if that holy man took this holy meat that had been offered to the Lord and tossed it out to these scavenging dogs as if it had no more value than the lepers, sores, or the other garbage they ate. Made no difference to them. See, this is a shocking concrete mental image that pictures spiritual truth. Spiritual truth about holiness, about holy things, and about people. So let's just say what this spiritual truth is not. 
what Jesus is not teaching here. Jesus is not commanding us here to prejudge people, to decide ahead of time who we think will accept the gospel and the truths of God and who we think will reject it. I want to say that again. This is not about us making prejudgments or predeterminations about who we think might receive the gospel and who we think might reject it. What would we base that judgment on anyway, that prejudgment? How someone looks, how someone smells, the language that person uses, the company they keep, the places they go. If you and I made predeterminations about people before we shared the gospel with them, we could probably find reason to keep the good news of the gospel away from just about everybody. We could do it. As Jesus told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We have no idea in whose life the Spirit of God is at work. Therefore, you and I are to offer the gospel to all people. Are we clear on that? Are we clear on what Jesus is not saying here? He's not commanding us to prejudge or to withhold the gospel or the pearls of his truth from those that we may believe to be a dog or a pig. We're to share the gospel with all people. What does Jesus mean here? Well, I believe that Jesus means that when the good news, the good news of the gospel is mocked, and the good news of the gospel has been mocked since the first time it was ever preached, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, there were mockers there to mock the gospel. When the gospel is mocked, when it's trampled underfoot, when it's rejected, when the truths of God are held up for ridicule by a person, move on from that person. That's what I think Jesus is saying here. Because some people are determined to persist in their godlessness to their own destruction and to the destruction of others around them. It doesn't matter how gracious you are to them. It doesn't matter how loving you are to them. In fact, Jesus says here in this verse, they may turn and attack you. So move on. Maybe you planted the seed. and Maybe God will send someone else when that person's heart is softer. Or maybe they will die as God-haters and God-mockers. We can't know that. Jesus' command here is for us to make a judgment on how people respond to the gospel, and once they've treated it like a wild, scavenging dog or pig, move on. Jesus gives these instructions. Matthew 10 helps bring clarity to this. He tells his disciples when he sends them out to do ministry, Whenever you enter a city or a village, search for a worthy person and stay in his home until you leave town. When you enter the house, give it your blessing. If it turns out to be a worthy home, let your blessing stand. If it is not, take back the blessing.
Well, oh, <laughs> praise God. Oh, Lord. <laughs> All right, let's all take a deep cleansing breath. <sighs> now we are ready to move on. I think I was saying that we assume that we know what the holy things are, but we don't take time to list them, to name them, to consider what we have in our hands. And that seems to be one of the applications of this passage to me. These holy things are yours and mine. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Is that not amazing verse. We have this treasure. The challenge for me from this verse is to recognize more the holy things of God, to value them, to treasure them, to set them apart as holy. Here's our problem sometimes as evangelical churches. We don't have a sense for what is holy. Now we emphasize right teaching and that's good and as it should be. And we emphasize getting the gospel message out so that people can come to faith in Christ. And that's as it should be. But we don't have holy things. Our tradition has stripped away the things that represent to our eyes and to our finite minds what is holy. Candlelight. Candlelight. The fire of it represents in Scripture the presence of God. Incense represents the, the prayers of God's people that are going up before God where Christ is seated at His right hand, interceding and praying for us. And because we don't often have holy things anymore, we sort of have a, a casual approach to the things of God. We don't have holy things that instill in us a sense of awe and reverence. Just because these things have become rote to some people, because they may have lost their meaning, doesn't mean that they have no meaning. It doesn't mean that sights and smells and sounds and tastes and things we can touch cannot and should not impress upon us the holiness of God, the set-apartness of God and His truth. These things can help us value more what is holy and treat things as holy. And we need this. We need it. It seems to me that instead of seeking to elevate our culture to a higher level, which is what we should do, to elevate our culture to a holy level, a level that demonstrates that we as God's people are, are set apart, that we do have holy things, it seems to me that we as a church are determined to lower ourselves. It seems to me that we as a church attempt to mimic the culture in every way we can. We want to do just what the culture does, only we change the words and make them Christian. How will we communicate that we have holy things 
that we have set apart things, that we have things that are different from the things they have if we continue to do this. What are we going to use to remember that God has given us holy things? I'm not saying that we have to have candles. I'm not saying that we have to have uh, incense or, 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 or a sanctuary. I'm just saying that we've got to think about what we have that's holy. We've got to think about the weight of those things and how we should handle those things and where we should take those holy things. And having thought about them and named them, we're required to think about how to treat them as holy all the time. I think of the story in the Old Testament of Esau. Esau possessed a holy thing. It was right there in his hands. Esau was the firstborn son of Isaac. And Isaac was the firstborn son of Abraham. And Abraham was the man to whom God said, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. These are the words of the holy, holy, holy one and only, true and living God. Through the line of Abraham, Isaac. Through the line of Abraham, Jesus, the Messiah, will come. This is God's blessing on Abraham. And then that blessing is passed on to his son Isaac. And then on to his son Esau. Only not so much. Esau had this holy thing in his hand. This amazing blessing of God. It was his. He possessed it. He was the firstborn. But how did he treat the holy things of God? One day Esau came in from the field where he'd been working. He was exhausted. His brother Jacob was cooking a pot of stew. You know this story. Esau said, let me, ha- let me eat some of that stew for I'm exhausted. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Drama much? Jacob said, swear to me now. So Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate, and he drank, and he rose, and he went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. For a bowl of soup... A bowl of soup, Esau gave away this holy thing of God. And then he got up and he walked away from the table as if nothing significant had just happened. How much of Esau is there in each of us? It isn't that Esau is dastardly and evil. It's just that he never looked at the holy thing that was in his hand. And so he would give it away instead of trading everything in order that he might retain it. What will it take for us to reverence the things of God, the truths about the kingdom of God, the gospel? I think there are two actions. And the first action is to listen. I think that 
that we will begin to know and reverence the things of God when we listen to the words that God speaks over us, just like the words that God spoke over Abraham. These are some of those words. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You and I begin to reverence holy things, to look for them in our hands when we know that this is who the Lord has made us to be, temples of the Holy Spirit. Romans 12.1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy to God. We reverence holy things. We look for them in our hands when we think about what pleases God when we present ourselves before Him. 1 Peter 2.5 You are part of a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.12 Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are holy things. 1 Peter 1.15 As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Holiness is our calling. Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And 2 Timothy 1.9 says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Now these are just some of the words that God speaks over you and over me. And it's from His voice that we should get our view of ourselves. It's from His voice that we should get our identity. It's from His voice that we should get our direction and purpose. We must not let the world define those things for us. They can't define us. We must not let the culture speak its words of purpose or affirmation or identity over us. God's Word must have that special privilege in our lives. And when you and I long to hear more of God's truth for us, speak more, Lord, to me. We begin to develop a sense of awe for what is holy, for what's in our hands, and for what we are to do with it. So we listen. Secondly, we pray. In addition to allowing God's work to speak, we get a sense of holy things in our hands when we pray. And, and we only have just a second to do this. To look at verse 7, but it's time enough. Look in verse 7. Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. See, I believe that verse 6 helps us understand verse 7. Because when we understand verse 6, the holy things of God, we no longer hold out hope that verse 7 puts Jesus in a genie bottle for us to grant us our every wish. Prayer then does not become our magic wand to get whatever we want. Instead, in light of verse 6, 
Prayer becomes asking God to show us what's holy. Ask, seek, knock for help and understanding holy things. Ask, seek, and knock that those holy things will transform our lives. Ask, seek, and knock that we will rightly offer those holy things to others. Holy Spirit things are holy. And, and we know what spirit things are. We know what the fruit of the Spirit is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now, when we pray, we ask for those things. Father, give me love. Father, give me joy. Father, give me peace. These are the requests that receive this promise from God in verse 8. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. These are the holy things that God promises to give to us. The things that are going to bring depth to everything else that would be shallow without them. It brings depth to our families, our friendships, our personal freedom, our fun experiences, everything else that was on that list in the beginning. Think about it. Think about how being able to truly love other people well will give your life depth and will make your life really good. Think about having real joy in your life will give your life depth and make your life really good. Think about having peace in your life will give your life depth and make your life really good. We could go right on down the list of the fruit of the Spirit. These things, then, are the things that begin to fill up our prayer lists if you keep one of those. Things that we ask, seek, and knock for ourselves and others. These are the things for which we pray. These are some of the holy things offered by holy people that elevate our culture, that lift it out of the mire. And through these holy things that God places in our hands, God does great things, the things for which He deserves all glory. So we must therefore ask for more, more holy things. Lord, let me see them. Let me recognize what is holy. Let me have and treasure these holy things. Transform my life through them and through me. Use them to transform others. Let's pray. Lord, this is our prayer. Now, for those of us who are casual about holy things, Lord, for those of us who are flippant even at times about holy things, for people who don't rightly identify ourselves as temples of the Holy Spirit, for people who don't often think about our calling to be holy, for people in whose lives that is evidenced by the things that we do and the places that we go, how we demonstrate so often that we don't value and treasure and reverence and stand in awe of the holy things of God, for people like us, Lord, we come to you asking and seeking and knocking. Lord, make us holy people. Show us the holy things that you have entrusted to us. 
Lord, make us willing to trade everything we have just for these beautiful, holy things. What the world needs now is you and your holiness and your holy things. Convict us, Lord, that we don't need to be just like the world in order to attract them. Lord, I pray that you would dispel that lie from our hearts. We are different. We are set apart. We are holy unto you. Lord, our job is to call people up. Yes, we, we meet them on their level, Lord, but we elevate them. We don't look to them for the right answers and then mimic them as if they know holy things from unholy things. So, Lord, change us. Give us a clear vision of who we are and your holiness and what you've called us to be and to do and how you've called us to use and treat your holy things. And may we do that. And, Lord, we pray that the result of it would all be for your glory. We pray that the result of it would be that our world would be changed for Jesus' sake. In whose name we pray. Amen.